Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. In my day job, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's a show about the texture and vibe of this amazing city that we're in. On most programs, like today, Rediscovering New York focuses on neighborhoods, exploring their history and also their current energy. What makes a particular New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, artists, sometimes musicians, and other neighborhood personalities. Sometimes, as those of you who've listened to the show know, we host a show about an interesting part, a theme of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In the past, we've talked about U.S. presidents who came to New York. Uh, we've talked about the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn. We've talked about Irish immigrants who came to New York as their first stop in the States and made it their home. We had some special episodes around Stonewall 50, and we've even explored the history of bicycles and cycling. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Woolworth Building and Rockefeller Center, and next week, we are actually going to be talking about some very unusual museums in the city. But today, we are exploring a fascinating neighborhood. It's an incredibly special New York neighborhood, one that became synonymous in this city with the term Bohemian. <clears throat> it's Central Greenwich Village or the Village. Uh, and for people who don't know both neighborhoods, sometimes people think the West Village is really Greenwich Village. It's not. That was the original area, but um, the part of the neighborhood that we're going to be talking about tonight is Central Greenwich Village or the Village. Uh, by the way, after the broadcast, uh, each show is available on podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. My first guest is a Rediscovering New York regular, the amazing Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history, and for over 40 years, she's been guiding New Yorkers and visitors to rave reviews through private walking tours as well as tours open to the public. Her site, by the way, is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Joyce is published. She has published a guidebook called From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan, and also From Trout Stream to Bohemia. I wonder what that book covers, Joyce, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. She has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. Her article, Learning on Foot, Walking Tours of New York City, appeared in the Parents League 2007 Review. And Joyce has the honor and distinction of being named by the New York Times as the doyen of New York City tour guides. You can't get much better than that. <laughs> Joyce, a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Hi, Jeff. It's great to be here again. Well, a lot of our listeners know what your background is, but I know our listenership has been increasing, and you really do have an interesting way that you wound up doing what you're doing. So if you could just speak briefly about your personal history, where you're from, because you're not from New York, and how you got into the business of illuminating and bringing New York to life for people who were lucky enough to be on your tours. Well, yes, I come from a small town in Pennsylvania, but I moved to New York in the ninth grade, and to me, New York is about one main thing, and that's choice. Whatever you're into, choice. Uh, New York has, and Greenwich Village has as many choices as just about any other neighborhood. Uh, I was a computer analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in the 1970s, and it wasn't really my, my love of a, of a company. 
of a field to work in, and just one day I was browsing through a wonderful old dusty bookstore, Mendoza's, long gone, and I came upon a hundred-year-old guidebook about New York a hundred years earlier, and it talked about the earliest days of the city, and these were about streets that I passed every day coming from the subway to my office, and I was hooked. And then when I found that the first, uh, first battle of the American Revolution, some say, the Battle of Golden Hill, was actually on the site where I was working, I was hooked. And it changed my daily life. So to me, Manhattan history was something that I thought a lot of other New Yorkers would really enjoy. And so New Yorkers were the original people that I started talking about Manhattan history to. Now I talk about it to whoever would like a tour. And I'm also going to give an endorsement because uh, in my real estate business, I host a series of historic walking tours for my network. And Joyce is my partner in those tours. They're her tours. I just, I just offer them to people I know. Uh, before we start out talking about the village, you know, one thing I didn't realize, but I was really surprised to hear, Joyce, that the original name for Greenwich Village was not English. I always thought, I, having lived in London and having been to Greenwich and the Observatory and the Queen's House, uh, I always thought it did, but it doesn't. It's actually from a Dutch name, isn't it? It is, but sometimes thing that, things that started out as Algonquin, like Kalchuk, a large lake that used to be in lower Manhattan, when the English came in, they anglicized it, and it became the Collect Pond. It really meant Shellfish Point. It became the Collect Pond. And I think the Dutch form of Green Village, when the English came in, got a very English tinge to it and mm. became Greenwich. But actually, Greenwich Village is a redundant term because which means village. We are saying green village village. But in New York, New Yorkers call it either the village or Greenwich village, never Greenwich. Hmm. Well, I grew up with it being a native New Yorker as knowing it is the village. Um, was this part of the, of the island, what would become Greenwich Village, was this inhabited by, by local peoples before the Dutch came in the 1620s? Yes, it was. The area that would today be around Gansevoort Street and the Hudson River was a trading post with Indians of New Jersey. They don't seem to be living there because it didn't have drinking water or protection, which usually was important to the Native Americans, but that was what the uh, Indians did and also what is now Washington Square Park, used to have a stream running through it, and the Native Americans used to visit it to catch trout or 30 to 50 pound turkeys or uh, to uh, pick berries, large berries, along the waterway. And that must be where part of the name from Trout Stream to Bohemia comes from. There was a trout stream. Excellent. Uh, wow. Yes, that yeah. was the first reason that people visited Greenwich Village was to catch trout, of all things. Now they look to catch other things in the park, but we'll talk about the park in a little while in its history. Um, so what did the Dutch do when they first uh, settled the island? Who was there? What did they do with it? Did they turn it into farmland as they did? Uh, okay, the well, the Dutch basically had a city south of the wall they built to protect it from uh, invading English by land. 
And of course, when the wall is removed, that's Wall Street. So that was at the southern tip of the 13-mile-long island of Manhattan. But in the years of 1624 to 64, the 40 years we were a Dutch colony, if you wanted a farm, you farm 10 miles to the north, which would today basically be New Harlem. It's been called Harlem ever since 1658. Mm. Greenwich Village didn't really get settled until the line of settlement moved up the island of Manhattan. And basically, that would be the 1820s and 30s, although some African Americans were the first actually to live in that area, and that would have been in the Dutch times. What would have been in what we know now as the village when the British were here from the time of the takeover until the time of the revolution? Well, just to answer your previous question briefly, one of the Dutch governors grew tobacco in Greenwich Village, so that's the first European use we know of it. But the village Is that the standard why they offer smokables for sale in Washington Square Park <laughs> to keep in the tradition? Not getting into that. All right, well. <laughs> um, but uh, especially the area of the west part of Greenwich Village had a natural advantage. It was built on 70 feet of sand, and that meant yellow fever, which was rife in the summer in the lower city, never went to Greenwich Village, so it became a healthful resort. And the first church to be built in Greenwich Village was St. Luke in the Fields in 1821, and St. Luke was a doctor, so the name continued as a healthful resort. Let's talk a little bit about the history of something which is iconic to the village, and it really uh, overshadows so much of it, Washington Square Park. Mm -hmm. um, what was Washington Square Park before it became a park? Well, it was something of a swamp, but in 1644, uh, Africans who had been brought over as slaves or indentured servants were given land in the outlying districts with the requirement that they farm it, and so they were the original owners of Washington Square. It was where a stream called Mineta Water, among other things, curved, making it a bit swampy, and that's what Washington Square began as. Now, after the American Revolution, it was still out of town, away from where most people were living, and it was, therefore, a graveyard because people didn't know about bacteria or viruses, but they figured safer for the living, living a bit to the south, if the people who died of things communicable could be buried out of town, and that was Washington Square. When did it become a park, a square, a common for, for people to be able to uh, use, to graze their mm -hmm. cows, if that's what they did, if, when it were? No, just they, to they didn't do that. In the 1820s, it became the Washington Parade Ground, and that's where the militia would do their exercises. Unfortunately, it was not only hallowed ground, it was hollow ground with all those graves that they never moved underneath, and the cannon would fall through, so it didn't last long. But it was in the early 1820s, and in 1826, it was named for George Washington for a very appropriate reason. It was the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And so it's been named for our first president ever since. And when was the arch built? The arch was, uh, the present arch was completed in 1892. Uh, there was a temporary arch that was just across the street for the centennial of George Washington's inauguration. He was inaugurated on Washington, interesting symbolism, 
on, July, on April 30th of 1789, and New York was the first capital. He served as president along with the first cabinet and the first Congress in New York for a year and a half. So uh, for the centennial, the temporary arch went up, and people liked it so much they re- raised $128,000 for the present one. When did the village begin to come to become uh, a residential neighborhood with row houses and where people would... Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that would be in the 1820s, well-to-do people. Many of them had previously lived in the either the uh, increasingly commercial financial district, as we now call the Southern Tip, or Soho, which was the most populated residential neighborhood in the 1820s, people of means decided they didn't want to be among the noise and the clutter. So uh, they covered over the park and in the 1820s built beautiful row houses, none of which remain on the south part of the park, and particularly beautiful Greek revival houses on the north part of the park, which are still there from 1833. Uh, most of them are owned by NYU now. And, uh, for, Correct. Uh, I don't wonder how many of our listeners uh, saw the film The Heiress, which uh, I don't, uh, the houses look too big inside to be really there, but that's, uh, that, that, that's, where, the, uh, that's, that's where the movie takes place. That's right. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Joyce Gold about The Village, also oh, known yeah. as Greenwich Village. Yes. Be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York in our very special show about The Village, or Central Greenwich Village. My first Joyce, my first guest, I have Joyce on the brain, my first guest is Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Um, Joyce's website is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com, and Joyce, I'd like to ask you uh, about the tours that you host specifically for Greenwich Village. I think you do more tours of The Village than any other part of the city. Definitely. I do tours of over 40 parts of the city, 
but I do something like 35 different tours of Greenwich Village because almost anything you want to talk about, Greenwich Village has. For example, every Halloween, I usually do a macabre Greenwich Village. It's about things associated with death and dying and missing persons and haunted this and that. And, it's a great uh, tour. I've been on explosions that one. and that sort of thing. I also have um, immigrant, radical, notorious women of Washington Square. There were many kinds of groups of women and many very famous individuals and very effective, not famous individuals. I have an architecture tour. I'm fascinated by all the different architecture ever since 1799 until today in Greenwich Village. I have a food tour of the neighborhood. I have a labor tour. I have an Italian history tour. I have an African-American history tour. And it's really quite endless. Wow. And you can find out about all those tours on joyschooledhistorytours.com. Excellent. Um, I want to move uh, to uh, the turn of the last century. Greenwich Village wasn't always residential. Um, immediately east of the park, uh, there were actually factories at one point, weren't there, including yes, textiles? Yes, correct. Uh, in fact, the, the famous Triangle Shirtwaist Fire happened only a block from Washington Square. Yes, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire was the, the, the worst building fire New York ever had until 9-11 and 146 people out of the 500 people working in three floors of a factory building died that day, 80 of whom jumped. Nobody who jumped survived. Mm. Um, I, so I have a little personal experience. My uh, grandmother, may she rest in peace, she had just moved to the East Village from uh, uh, East New York uh, in the housing glut that was created when the German community moved up to Yorkville after the Slocum disaster. And she told me she remembered the uh, Triangle Shirtwaist fire and my great-grandfather held her on his shoulders and she was able to see wow. all the bodies in the wow. street. Um, well, I want to move on to Bohemia. Um, how did the village get started as an enclave of the avant-garde and alternative culture? And when did that happen? Well, I think it really began in the 1850s, just before the American Civil War. There were a lot of publishers uh, just east of Washington Square. And some of the writers, including Walt Whitman, the great poet, uh, Horace Greeley, the greatest publisher in New York in the mid-19th century, and a few actresses uh, used to hang out at FAFs. It was literally underground. It was kind of an under, under uh, Bleecker Street uh, eatery and mainly drinkery. And uh, Like the Five Oaks used to be on Grove uh, <laughs> <Crow> Street. <laughs> and uh, somebody said to one of the women, uh, what does it mean to be a, a bohemian? She said, it means I'm not a victim of feeling or good taste. And that was when a lot of people who moved to Greenwich Village felt very liberated by the move. They tried to do things that nobody else was doing. They tried to do things that were original. <clears throat> and that has gone on probably for 150 years. It became known, usually, especially through the Mabel Dodge uh, famous salon, uh, of a place of creativity. And I think the fact that so many creative people were there supported them all. Mm. Well, who were some of the, <laughs> the famous people that many of our listeners would recognize by name, but uh, who either didn't know or might be surprised to hear 
that they lived and thrived in the village. Well, many people came to the village, most of them from other places. Henry James was actually born half a block east of Washington Square Park in 1843, lived there only for six months, and then his family took him to Europe. But his house was replaced by the building of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Edith Wharton, who was born on 23rd Street, lived briefly at Washington Square. Willa Cather came to Greenwich Village to write about the upstanding, solid people of Nebraska. Edna St. Vincent Millay came. Fellow ambassador grad. <laughs> yes, yes, went from uh, Maine, where she was born, although named, her middle name was for a Greenwich Village hospital, to Vassar, your alma mater, to Greenwich Village, and wrote about kind of the current version of Carpe Diem, Behold the Day. My Candle Burns at Both Ends is one of her fa most famous poems. Uh, um, Eugene O'Neill uh, was first performed his plays, greatest possible playwright of, of uh, America, some say. Uh, his first play was, was performed at Cape Cod, but then the Provincetown Playhouse opened in Greenwich Village and had a very large effect on the rest of the country because it was, there were plays with literary merit and other, other cities still uh, decided that they wanted plays of literary merit also. So there were a great number of these amazing thoughtful people. Mm. Uh, and even before there was a modern women's right movements, mo rights movement in this country, and even before women got the right to vote, there were very prominent women, including artists and writers, who did make the village their home, mm -hmm. and who used it as a base uh, to write and to also to uh, prefer their art. By the way, I've been on the uh, notorious women of <laughs> <laughs> Washington Square tour. It's a really, really good one. And of course, with forward thinking and great art, the village also was a hotbed of what was considered some very radical political thinking. Uh, Jack Reed lived in the village at some oh, point? Oh, yes, Jack Reed did. And Mabel Dodge, uh, who actually had an affair with Jack Reed, um, she left town when they broke up, I believe. She had affairs with a number of people, aside from being married to uh, her husband and being a very good friend of, of uh, Gertrude Stein when she and her husband lived in Paris. Uh, what was your question? I get so involved in these wonderful people. Oh, just about women in general and about the radicals, but actually I would love to hear a little bit about Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney and mm -hmm. her salons in the village. Mm -hmm. and her, uh, well, in 1907, she <laughs> marries Harry Whitney. Two huge fortunes came together. He had just inherited millions, and she decided she didn't only want to be social uptown, but she wanted to learn to sculpt. She had always wanted to sculpt. And also, her money could support a lot of the more impecunious artists who were coming into Greenwich Village. For example, Robert Henry, who came from the Midwest, who painted a very iconic portrait of her. She paid for him to go to Paris and stay in Paris for a while. She thought it would help his art. Uh, the Modern art was really introduced to America in 1913 at the great uh, Armory Show, and Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney helped pay for that. Hmm. Uh, the village was, all, was a neighborhood first in a lot of ways. Uh, the city's first officially racially integrated nightclub was in the village in 1938 mm -hmm. called Cafe Society. That's right. Um, what was the village like during the years of the Second World War? During the Second World War, 
Um, not sure, actually. Okay. <laughs> pretty depleted of a lot of the men who went to work, pretty depleted of a lot of the women who went to the war effort, like at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Well, I was kind of a leading question because then we're going to get to the birth of the modern Bohemian village. Um, the village was the East Coast birthplace of what became known as the Beat Generation, the other being Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. Who were some of the prominent writers and personalities in the 1950s who... Uh, uh, well, some of them stayed at the Ce- uh, drank at the Cedar Tavern. Some of them came from Gren- uh, the East Village. Some of them had quit Columbia to write poetry. Allen Ginsberg was one of the people that would hang out there, even though he didn't live in Greenwich Village. And it was a time when poets were reciting their poetry to the tune of bongo drums in coffee houses. And the oldest coffee house in Greenwich Village, actually the first, has been on its same McDougal Street site since 1927, the Cafe Reggio. And they introduced something brand new to America, cappuccino, in 1927. The United States had not seen cappuccino until 1927? Possibly in the kitchens of some of the many Italian immigrants, but nothing commercially. Wow, wow. Um, Well, New York was the spiritual home of uh, the 60s and the counterculture movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the counterculture in the village around this time. we did have an unsavory, illegal, and deadly fringe element to the movement, um, and that was the Weather Underground, uh, also known as the Weathermen. I remember when I was young, my mother used to refer to them as the Weathermen. I thought it was they were like Weathermen. Weathermen? Uh, yes. But well, you know, the name of the militant part of the Students for a Democratic Society, the Weathermen, comes from a Bob Dylan lyric that says, it doesn't take a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. So they picked up that term, and they were very opposed to the war in Vietnam. They felt that it was such a serious, imminent threat that it wasn't appropriate to write letters or to picket, but they had to do something very direct. And they tried to bomb, blow up uh, facilities that they felt supported the war. So very famously, uh, in 1970, some of them were in a beautiful, beautiful home uh, off of Fifth Avenue and were creating bombs partly to blow up an officer's dance at Fort Dix in Brooklyn and partly to blow up a section of Columbia University, which they thought was part of the war effort. Unfortunately for Kathy Boudin and other of the uh, SDS members, the Weathermen members, uh, this is, of course, before the start of the most recent women's movement, or it wouldn't have been called Weathermen. Yes. (laughs) Because there were a lot of women involved in that. Um, and unfortunately, the bomb went off, and a couple of them were on the lam, and a few of them got killed. And the house, speaking of architecture, was just an empty wreck for a decade or more. And you can still see the replacement on West 11th Street. It sort of juts out. Uh, uh, it does. <clears throat> it juts out as if to evoke the explosion. But for many years, when the Langworthy uh, couple owned it, they would put a Paddington bear in the kind of jutted out window. And I always thought they, they dressed the, the bear possibly to soften the image, but they dressed them if, in, if it was a snowy day in boots, if it was a rainy day in uh, galoshes and raincoat. And I always thought that that was a pun on weatherman myself. Mm. 
Well, the village was also the birthplace of the modern LGBT rights movement. Yes. Uh, it just didn't happen in a vacuum. There were many LGBT people living in the village mm-hmm. way before the Stonewall Uprising in 69. Um, we don't have much time left, but uh, one of your special uh, uh, things that you love is architecture. What is some, what's some of the great architecture that we have in the village? Well, one of the most striking, uh, people always misinterpret what it was, is one of the two public library branches in Greenwich Village at 6th Avenue and 10th Street is the Jefferson Market Library public branch, but it was built in 1876 as a courthouse. And a lot of very famous people were arrested there, partly in opposing uh, the war. Um, one woman was arrested for writing under a pseudonym and acting in a Broadway show called Sex. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. <laughs> it did, because when she was arrested, and I am talking about Mae West, she had a wonderful line. She said, I believe this will be the making of me, and it was. And it was. Wow. Uh, and you still can see the Jefferson Market branch of the public library. Uh, one other thing, um, uh, it's interesting that uh, the village is such an extraordinary neighborhood, and we have the historic preservation movement in the city that mm-hmm. led to the landmarks law and the designation of historic districts. Uh, a lot of people might think it's true, but it's not. The first neighborhood to be designated as a historic district in the city was not Greenwich Village. Correct. It was Brooklyn Heights because the people of Brooklyn Heights had already done the renovation and the, the research for it. But Greenwich Village, and I've been very involved in presenting it, is now this year celebrating the 50th anniversary preservation district. So um, the Village Preservation Group, Village... Preservation is its new name, used to be called the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation, having multiple lectures and uh, tours and all kinds of things connected to this. Hmm. Well, Joyce, we're out of time. I want to thank you so much for coming back to Rediscovering New York. Our first guest has been the amazing Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. You can see Joyce's tours and go on them. You can get them at JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. And Joyce also has a very compelling Instagram uh, account, and that's Joyce Gold History Tours. Am I correct? You are correct. Joyce, thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m. we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day.
We're back. We will hear from our second guest in a moment, a very special guest. Um, Want to talk a little bit about the support for our show. It comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods, and the wonderful textures of this amazing city. Even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate, but don't worry, there is a really good one. It's called Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook. It's Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And you can also follow me on Instagram, Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions or you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second special guest, even though this is not a show about the real estate business, when I'm not hosting the show, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me at 646-306-4761. Well, it's time for a very special guest, someone I've actually known for about 20 years, and I've known him through music, uh, Bob Sadenberg, also known as Sheriff Bob Sadenberg, uh, the Sheriff of Good Times. He's been playing... Very tough job being the Sheriff of Good Times. Bob, somebody has to do it. If not you, then who? That's right. Uh, The Sheriff has been playing country, bluegrass, and folk music in New York for over 60 years. In the 50s and 60s, Bob was playing in West Village cafes. We're going to ask him about that with the likes of Wavy Gravy and Bob Dylan. One day, the sheriff picked up the Dobro, put on a badge, and declared himself the Sheriff of Good Times. He's been hosting country and bluegrass jams and festivals in the city since 1996. He started the Alphabet City Opry with Greg Gehring, which brought a lot of attention to the NYC, to New York City bluegrass music scene. The sh- I have to keep uh, go on with this because you're, you're, what you do is amazing. The sheriff currently runs a jam every third Wednesday of the month, which I have been to. That's where we met, I think, 20 years ago. It's at Zincpar, where everyone is encouraged to play and sing along and learn the songs. The sheriff also performs weekly at Live Music Mondays at East Village Social every Monday from 9 to 11. Sheriff Bob supports other jams, such as Mona's Monday Night Bluegrass Session. That's also a really good one. I've been to that one. It's run by guitarist Rick Snell. These jams keep the scene thriving. The best players in the country all pass through when they come to New York. The sheriff brings good times to the small Caribbean island of Anguilla. I got to ask you about that, where he co-produces the Moonsplash Festival at the Dune Preserve with longtime friend and fellow musician Banky Banks. He also runs a studio where artists such as Chris Thile, did I get that name? Feely. Feely, sorry. The Punch Brothers and Phoebe Hunt have recorded. Many recordings have come out of the Sheriff's studio, the next of which is the sophomore album from Sheriff and the Deputy to be released later this year. Sheriff Bob starred in a short documentary film, which I had been lucky enough to see. Uh, it's called The Sheriff of Good Times, featuring some of the finest musicians in the city, which premiered in the West Village at the Independent Film Center in 2018. Sheriff, a hearty welcome well, to well, Rediscovering Well, thank you, Jeff. I mean, uh, we have been friends now for 20 years. I, I first saw you, you know, out there at the what then was the Bagot Inn, now the Zinc Bar. 
appreciating the kind of stuff we do. And uh, it was in what I was listening to what Joyce was saying about the village. I started hanging out in the village when I went to a nice Quaker school on 16th Street named Friends Seminary. And so how does a, someone at a good Quaker school end up being a bourbon and beer drinking uh, dobro player at a bluegrass jam? That's a very good question. <laughs> My wife has asked me that many times. But uh, life just takes its own ways. Uh, luckily, I grew up in a musical family. My father was a great classical musician. And you're from New York originally. I'm from New York. I got moved here when I was four years old from Chicago, which I thanked my parents many times. Because growing up in New York City was wonderful. I had such a good time. And I, uh, since I went to school near the village, a lot of my friends were from the village. So I started hanging out in Washington Square, I think when I was about 10 or 11 years old. That was the place to go after school. But, well, but musically, I mean, Washington Square Park... People still come there, and they started sometime in the 50s, or at least I was, to play music, just to get together. And there was a bluegrass scene in the late 50s of people hanging out in Washington Square. And that was the first time I got to play with uh, that group of people. And then shortly afterwards, Wavy Gravy, who was then Hugh Romney, who, for people who don't, Wavy Gravy was the host at Woodstock in 1969, and a wonderful gentleman who lives out in the West Coast now, but he was running the poetry session at the Gaslight, and he asked me to come play with him, and this was before there was really folk music down there. It was more about the poetry than the music, but in about 1960, all of a sudden, New York became a place where musicians came, and Bob Dylan, Tom Paxton, all those people were playing here in New York, and it, you know, and that changed the scene, playing in the village, mostly at the Gaslight and the Village Gate and the Bottom Line. I mean, this in the 60s, there was uh, the Loving Spoonful, John Sebastian, who was a New York City kid, and he wrote all the songs for the Loving Spoonful. He was playing here. It was just wonderful. And I was, a, I was one of the young members of that scene now. Now things have changed. I'm the oldest one on the street now. Well, thank goodness you're still here and uh, thank uh, regaling us uh, with, with, your, with your art and also with the love that you put into it. Um, how old were you when you first started playing an instrument? Uh, three, four, I don't know. And what way, you way back. I didn't start playing. I grew up playing clarinet and saxophone. And then I heard Pete Seeger, and the very next day I went out and bought a five-string banjo and decided I was a folk singer. Wow. That was about when I was 16, you know, because, you know, I found that uh, with a banjo and 10 songs, uh, people paid attention to you all of a sudden. I mean, girls. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess that's what I mean. I get it. I get it. Um, so at first you started hanging out in Washington Square, and then when music changed, you started going to some of the clubs in the early 60s? I remember going to clubs even in the 50s, the, the jazz clubs. And luckily, my parents were interested in all kinds of music. So I remember going to uh, the Blue Note and a bunch of jazz clubs that don't exist now when I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And the Village has always been this place to go to, to hear great music and to meet great musicians. And... It's still going. I, I think the scene in New York of, of acoustic music has never been better. So many young players from all over the country have moved here, mostly to Brooklyn, because uh, it's a little cheaper there, and uh, instead of going to Nashville. And if they're going to be on the road 200 days a year, like Chris Thiele, you know, they'd rather be in New York. 
you know, because the food's better. That's where it's happening. You know, this is the center of the universe. And you're probably getting more choices of cool uh, neighborhoods to live in that haven't uh, uh, come as long away uh, as long away as some other places. Yes. What inspired you play the dobro? And, and for people who either don't know, you would recognize it if you see it. It's um, it's an acoustic guitar, but it has a metal resonator that's built into the body, and that serves as an amplifier. Uh, well, the reason, the re- let me tell you the reason. In the late 20s, there were no electric guitars. They hadn't invented that yet. And the guitar players were complaining they couldn't be heard in the jazz bands. So the Dopera brothers invented the Dobro, but what they really invented was the speaker cone that's inside the guitar that makes it louder. And that was in about 1927. And the Dobro was a novelty. It was played a lot of Hawaiian music. I mean, part of it is this, you can play on top of the strings with a piece of metal, and that's called lap style, and that's what I do. And that, of course, was invented by the Hawaiians back in the 1870s when the, the Spanish brought guitars to Hawaii, and the Hawaiians tuned the guitars differently, and somebody figured you could take a piece of metal and put it on top of the string, and that was the center of Hawaiian music, which was very popular here in the States in the 30s. And that's you know why it became so. The first electric guitar was a lap steel, which is again something that's played with a metal bar. Wow! That was like 1935. Uh, when I was, did you start playing the dobro? I, I started. I was uh, part of my life. Uh, I was in the film business. I did uh, documentaries. I did a children's show called Big Blue Marble, which was about kids around the world. And I was down in uh, Nashville doing a film. And I went into a music store, and I said, hey, I need something new to play, and I picked up the dobro, which I could play. It's kind of like a guitar, which I played, and it took over my life. Hmm. So uh, that was, I think, 30 years ago, and I got my first bluegrass band maybe two years later, and then started running these jams, uh, I think, 25 years ago. So you've been doing bluegrass now for 30 years. I, I, for some reason, I just thought that the sheriff was born and bluegrass was there. Well, <laughs> you know, to me, it's all folk music. You know, you can call it country, bluegrass, and that's more has to do with instrumentation to me than what the source of the music. I, I play down in Anguilla, and I play with reggae bands, but I still play the same songs. So, you know, it's all folk music. So what, what, what inspired you all of a sudden to say bluegrass is the way I want to go? Because I, you know, I'm also passionate about it. To me, it's, it's, it's America's best folk music, and that to me is, is, is what I love about it. It, it, just, it, it, it comes it, from the heart. It comes from people who have everyday experiences, people who've struggled, people who have dreams, and people who, who just love to, to be artistic and to, and, and, and to have their music heard and be related to. And it's joyous. I mean, I think that's why a lot of people like to come to the jams, because it makes them feel good, you know. Yours truly. <laughs> well, <laughs> Me too. I mean, I love playing this music. Yeah. I mean, bluegrass, you know, I have a trouble with the word bluegrass, country, folk. It's, it's all American music. And you can play Red River Valley, which is an old, you know, Western song from 1890s, and you play it with a banjo, and you, and you play it fast, it becomes bluegrass. But there's such a wealth of songs that Americans have created. And who started rock and roll? You know, how did that happen? You know, you have the folk music from the Appalachia, and then you have the black influence from Africa, and, you know, all of a sudden you got Little Richard and you got rock and roll. And, and Elvis, too. <laughs> and Elvis, yeah. too. But, you know, it's, that, 
that to me, and it's still going. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our fascinating conversation with Sheriff Bob Sadenberg, the Sheriff of Good Times. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. We're back to Rediscovering New York and our second special guest, Sheriff Bob Sadenberg, the Sheriff of Good Times. Bob, why don't you talk to our listeners a little bit about the different music events that you host and how they can find out about them. Well, that's a, I would love to do that. Uh, I have been running bluegrass jams in the city for the last 25 years, and now I run a monthly jam at the Zinc Bar, which is at, uh, on 3rd Street between Thompson and Sullivan. And in fact, tomorrow night, Wednesday, August 21st, is our next jam. And we're going to have some of the finest players as part of the house band. Uh, Rick Snell, who you mentioned, and Max Johnson, one of the great young bass players. So the way we run the jam is that we have a house band, and then everybody can come up and play, unless they have saxophones or instruments that are inappropriate for bluegrass. But we've put up with a few good saxophone players. So that's this coming Wednesday. I do. Uh, it's a great jam. I wholeheartedly endorse it. When I lived downtown, I went all the time, and I would be there tomorrow night. Except I'm going to be on a plane to Phoenix tomorrow afternoon, so I can't come. Can't be in two places at once. It's no, unless the plane gets delayed till the next day. Then, and then, then you'll come. And uh, we are doing a show called Live Music Mondays at the East Village Social, which is a great place in the East Village on St. Mark's Place between First and York, and that's uh, every Monday from nine to eleven. And we do some traditional country music, and we do, my singing partner, Kat, does, uh, sings some wonderful original music, and she does that as part of the show. And each week we have a special guest. Uh, and when and where is that? That's on Mondays? That's, from that's a, every Monday night, and East Village Social is at 126 St. Mark's Place, and it is traditional East Village. It's really a cool place, brick, no food, really good drinks. 
and good people there. I'll have to go then, uh, yeah, and uh, that's, then that's after that, Mon- sometimes you go to Mona's. Mona's, so. uh, Rick Snell has been running a jam at Mona's for the last eight years, and that attracts some of the best players in the world. And those, when they're, they're in town last Monday, which I guess was last night, uh, Chris Laquette, one of the great young mandolin players, uh, Alex Hargraves, a fiddle player, all kids in their 20s, and they're top, top players, and, you know, they're out jamming late at night, and we stop somewhere around 2 in the morning at, you know, reasonable hour. I do want to get back to your experiences in the village in a minute, but i got to yeah. ask you. Please. Of all the places you host bluegrass music events, how did you come to do that in Anguilla? <laughs> well, I've, I've been to the Caribbean. I've been to a diff- different countries, different places, and I've, you, you, you wouldn't think of Anguilla as having a bluegrass festival. Well, it, it isn't. It's actually a reggae festival, and some of the major reggae bands have played there, but... You can play bluegrass songs with a reggae band, I have discovered. You know, it just changes the rhythm, but you can do King of the Road many different ways. Banky Banks, who was a wonderful songwriter, musician from Anguilla, I met here in New York, and we started working together, and he says, you gotta come down to Anguilla. It's such a great place, lots of musicians, and I think 30 years ago, I went down there, and we said, well, let's see if we can do some festival, we'll combine country music and reggae, and it started, we'd go to different islands. Now, 30 years later, Banky has this incredible place on the beach called the Dune Preserve. And we do shows there once uh, a year, usually around the full moon in March. Uh, last year, uh, Third World, one of the great bluegrass, uh, great reggae bands was there with Sheriff and the Deputy. So you can mix the two. And what time of year is it? Uh, Mar- usually in the mid-March. March, uh-huh. And it's a... a five-day festival over a weekend and it's good times Anguilla is a lovely island a British crown colony oh it's they still a crown a colony it's like, they have oh, a governor oh uh yeah I uh, last year uh, uh, earlier this year I was in St. Vincent I've not been to Anguilla maybe I'll I'll, I'll go to this festival yeah. in March um I want to ask you about the village what was the village like when uh, you first were able to start to go out, old enough to go out and go around? I mean, when I was nine? No, <laughs> you, no, to go into the bars and to hang out. Oh, I mean, when work. I got my first phony... I guess phony it was idea, not right. right. Maybe <laughs> when I was them? nine. Uh, the drinking age then was 18, so you didn't need it. It was easy. Uh, Even I remember those days. In some ways, it hasn't changed. It's a place where people come. You know, I think it's that's part of New York City, but, you know, it's just an incredible magnet for people and you know physically it's changed a little there's some new buildings you know there are less galleries unfortunately less places to play music but it's still it is the center of the universe one of the things i say on stage these days a little i know i'm a new yorker and i maybe it's a little pretentious you know where the center of the universe is canal street 14th street river to river center (laughs) of the universe well, literally the island in the center of the world, to plug uh, a book we were talking about yeah. earlier. It was written by a, a Russell Shorto. You know, I, from when I first, I was born in 1960, and we lived in Brooklyn, and my mother used to take us around, and my memories of the village are from an adolescent, and now part of the village to me seems like it's the same, from Third Street to Houston, McDougal, Thompson, and Sullivan. Right. To me, it seems timeless. It hasn't really changed. Yeah, I mean, there's still young people there. You know, I mean, the people who live in the village have changed because it's become less affordable. People in the 50s and 60s moved down there and to Soho, which is just below the village, because nobody was living there, especially in Soho. These were 
lofts that artists moved into illegally and now are extremely expensive uh, condos and condominiums and co-ops. Do you know anyone who lives in Soho? <laughs> I do. I do. I've lived in Soho for the last 35 years, very happily, but only a half a block from the village. So I've, I think of it as the village. You know, Sheriff, you bring up something very interesting. Change is the nature of things and nothing is permanent. Um, would you say there's been any substantial change at all from the village that when you became an adult back in the late 50s to now? Uh, aside from maybe, you know, not smelling reefer on the street, you know, as much at one point, but... Uh, I, I still smell uh, it. You know, now, now people are smoking it different, but you still smell it. But you smell it uptown now, too, so maybe that's the difference. It has moved. Uh, it still feels the same, but, you know, we are getting older, so it's somewhat hard to tell. I'm now 80, when I was 20, I think I looked at things differently than I do now. But I wouldn't rather live any place else than where we are in downtown Manhattan. I think it is the most alive place I have ever been to. I've traveled all over the world, and nothing is like New York. And the village, to me, is the center of New York. It's the soul of New York. I feel the same way. I get asked all the time, you know, when are you going to retire? Where are you going to retire to? What do you mean I'm going to retire to? I'm going to be, you know, here. Right. That reminds me of uh, uh, when Abe Beam died at uh, his memorial. His son was telling a story where um, he would never go anywhere. He would vacation in the summer down at the Rockaways. That you know, and and someone once asked him, Mr. He was mayor, you know, Mr. Mayor, your your honor, why you know, why don't you go anywhere? And he looked at them and he said, Why? It's all here. Yes. And that's yes. the story. Of New I mean, Abe Beam may have not been the greatest mayor of New York, but he was right about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I have an interesting question for you, Sheriff. Is there anything about the village that surprises you anymore? Would they, all of a sudden you come across an experience or something and you say, wow, that's, that's well, a new experience. I, I think one of the things that has changed is the amount of tourists in the village and the amount of languages you hear on the street. There's so many you know, French, German you know, languages I have no idea. It is, you know, this is the center of New York. And I guess, you know, people go down to Wall Street, but everybody comes to the village. I don't remember that being the case back in the 60s as much. Hmm. I think, you know, it was ours then. Now it's the world's. Do you have a sense of the people who come to listen to you and your colleagues play at Zinc Bar and other places, uh, are they from the neighborhood or do you think they come from other places? I think that sounds like music. It is. I, I think... Uh, no, we, I, I think a lot of tourists, you know, they come around the village and they see the, because I put a sign outside that says there's bluegrass there, and I, you know, people come in from all over and they love it. I mean, that's part of what they like about America is our music. They may not like our politics, but they do like our music. You know, I wanted to, uh, uh, had a couple of places down here that I wanted you to talk about your recollections of. Um, one of them, actually. Let's talk about the bottom line. Uh, what a shame. The bottom line had, I've, I remember seeing Lyle Lovett there, just you know, week after week, great performance. I luckily got to play there once. Uh, you know, we miss places like that. And the Village Gate, another one that was a great performance place. And though they've disappeared, unfortunately. Ooh. The Blue Note, which is a great jazz place, is still there, and hopefully it'll be there forever and ever. But the Village Vanguard's still there, isn't it? Village yes, Vanguard's still there. Right. Yes, yes. But uh, the music scene is still here, and that, that's great. And I think, you know, people love hearing live music. 
I think you know that, and just being part of the scene and seeing how much fun both the audience has and the players are having. I mean, every time I run my jam, I'm having a good time, or I'd stop doing this. You know, it's too much fun, and I am the sheriff of good times. It's my job. That you are sheriff. And uh, I hate to be a damper on the good times, but we are out of time. Our second guest has been Sheriff Bob Zadenberg. Zadenberg, I'm sorry. That's okay. Sheriff, I've, uh, that's my Eastern European Jewish Can I say one more plug? Sheriff of Good Times, sheriff. if you look up uh, that on your Google, you will find a very funny 13-minute music about the, the scene in New York and about me and my dog and my wife. And I can't wait to see you play again, which hopefully will be very in the near future. Uh, that's it for today. If you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and on Instagram. And I'd like to thank my sponsors again, the Mark Myman team at Freedom Mortgage and the law offices of Tom Siaka. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting the show, I'm a real estate agent at Halstead. Whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. My number is 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is the amazing Kelly Kenlon. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. You don't want to miss that. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? 
I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 